Good morning, everyone. Today's Bible reading is from Numbers 13, verses 25 to 31. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you, Bev. Thank you, Chloe. We have been doing a series on faith. This is a year of ever-increasing faith. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that he praised God that their faith was ever-increasing and that they were abounding in love. So we've claimed that promise that uh, we're going to abound in love and we're going to have an increasing faith this year. So we've been talking about faith as the year progresses. We'll talk about other things, uh, but we're talking about faith and how it works. And uh, so uh, we have a story here about uh, Caleb and Joshua. Um, And uh, what is interesting, I find interesting about this story is that in verse 32, it said that the, the 10 spies... Uh, The Bible says, had an evil report. The King James said an evil report. Some of the modern translations uh, water it down a little bit. They say a bad report. But I think evil is more strong. And I looked it up and it means evil. (laughs) It means like really, really, really evil. It wasn't just bad, it was evil. And then it tells us why it was evil. The reason that this is interesting is because... um, We've, we've talked about how faith must be released. And uh, point four, lovely to see someone taking notes, point four, <laughs> point four of the study guide is faith must be released. Uh, you can, uh, uh, Mark's been away for a couple of weeks. I said, don't worry, Mark, I think this is the fourth week on this sermon. So I know when people start to get it, their face lifts up. You know, a faith will take the, the, uh, the, the voice, the whinge out of your voice and the look of defeat off your face and you'll start walking around with a voice of victory. And James says this, he says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works, faith without accompanying works is useless. And then he lists uh, the, the words that we say, he mentions that as being the primary work of faith. And he says in James that your tongue sets on fire the course of nature in your life. So the primary, uh, the primary way that we release faith, there's lots of ways, but perhaps the first way and the primary way, is by our words. 
I'm not talking about some witchcraft. I'm not talking about you blab it, grab it. I'm talking about having what our conversation and what we say and how we communicate uh, lining up with what God says about us. And James says that your tongue is like a, 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 a little flame that sets on fire the course of nature in your life. Or he says it's like a rudder, which it says great ships are steered by a rudder. Or he says it's like a bridle in a horse's mouth. You want to steer the horse, you pull the bridle. So what he's saying, what God is saying, if, if you want to change the direction in your life, start with your mouth. And we looked at David and Goliath and David was very sassy when he ran towards Goliath. And one thing we learned from that is if you're going to run towards a giant, you need to open your mouth and start speaking the outcome of what's going to happen. It is interesting that with, uh, I find it interesting anyway, you might, you might sit there and think, well, that's not too interesting. But I find it interesting that, that the metaphors that James uses, it starts with something small and it, it eventually, it progresses and changes the life and changes what happens in your life over a period of time. So the flame, little kindle, sits on fire the course of nature in your life. When I was a kid in New Guinea, and uh, I thought I'd play with matches, and I just started a little flame, and it was dry season. I started a little flame about 50 meters from the house, and it was just a little, little, little flame. And I, I was so proud of myself that I had learned to start a fire. I had not, however, learned to stop a fire. And so it, it eventually took flame, and it, and, it, and it surrounded our house, and we nearly lost our house. Well, God says, your mouth, is like that flame, the words you say. Generally, the Bible, the Bible says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So genuinely, genuinely, generally, generally, most of the time you can locate what you're actually believing or holding fast to uh, by what you say. And then James says it's like the bit of a horse. A horse can be determined to go one way, but if you keep pulling its head, it will eventually turn around the way you want to go. I, I like the one, though, he says it's like a rudder. And, um, you know, you see those giant ships out there. You sit on uh, Kings Beach or up on Moffat and look at those giant ships. Some of those really big ones, if they're to, if they're to turn around and go back to the port of Brisbane, the first thing that they turn around is their rudder. But who knows that that ship would not turn around straight away. The ship would, may take 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 kilometres to go all the way around and come all the way back. So what the Holy Spirit was saying is that once we start speaking good things about our life, we need to keep speaking good things about our life. And it will begin to turn around. Now, uh, we looked at, um, so we've got uh, Caleb and Joshua here, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a context. Um, it's good to see and, and understand the context of what's happening. Very often in, in faith and Christianity and teaching, we find a little verse and we dig down in that verse and we can get all sorts of meaning out of it. But you won't really know if, if, if what you're, you're getting out of it is accurate until you pull back a little bit and see what's happening. All right, and see the context of what's happening. To that end, 
I just like you to know that out there, there is essential Bible themes course, which I have written, which talks about the major themes of the Bible and all donations are welcome. The reason I wrote this is because uh, time and time again, I've seen Christian lives going astray because they don't understand the big picture of what's happening. Now, the big picture, who'd like this? There you go, Brother Mark, that's yours. <laughs> Essential Bible themes. So what's happening with uh, Caleb and Joshua is they're about to, or God's brought them to the promised land. What, uh, and and they, they're, God's calling them to go into it and to take it. And uh, the interesting thing about this is there's, this is the culmination of hundreds of years of God working with them. God promised Abraham that they would have that his descendants would have a land and he stood him up on the hill and he looked he said see as far as your eyes can see this is what's going to be given to your descendants and this was the land that they were about to enter into and so we know and then he told them that they're going to be 400 years in Egypt and they're going to be brought out of Egypt and God moved wonderfully we know we know uh, the story of the Red Sea parting and, and the plagues that released them. So this is the whole children of Israel coming out of Egypt to head towards the promised land. This is the big build-up. So I've got to ask you this question. The 12 spies represented the 12 tribes. How many people of those 12 tribes who had been promised the promised land? Was it not all of them? Wasn't it all of them? So then, can we know if it's God's will for them to enter the promised land? If God says, I'm going to give you this land, and it's for all your descendants, and God moves mightily, and he raises them up in Egypt, and he brings them out over Egypt, and he protects them coming through the, coming through the wilderness, and there's a pillar of fire by night, and there's a cloud by day, and he feeds them supernaturally, and he gets them to the border of the promised land, all 12 of them representing the 12 tribes, that's the whole of Israel, all of God's chosen and called people. He says to them, this is your land, this is the promise, this is my promise for you. I think it's reasonably safe to assume that it was God's will for them to take that land. Come on, fans. Like, wouldn't you, you would think so. You'd think God had made it pretty obvious. Like he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land as far as you can see. Walk around it. It's yours. In 400 years, 400 years in Egypt, I'm going to bring him out of Egypt. We have mighty miracles. They're going to have no doubt what my will is. And then here they are now about to cross the River Jordan. And there's 12 spies. And they said, we think we're going to spend, send 12 in just to check it out. It's interesting then. I find it interesting. Again, you may not, but I do. And I've got the microphone. <laughs> I find it interesting that we can have no doubt that it was God's will. And yet, 10 of the 12 didn't enter the land. And we hear all the time, I hear all the time, well, if it's God's will, we'll get the land. If, if God really wants us to have the land, He'll give us the land. 
And yet here we have this, this big picture. This, we pull back and we have a look at the big picture of what's happening. And here are all these promises. Caleb says it's flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are this big. It's ready for us to take. It's God's will for us to take. And you would think that all 12, let's go take it. We can choose to believe God. Or we can choose not to believe God. And all those 12 had the choice. They had a choice. Are we going to believe God? Are we going to speak what God says? Or are we going to believe what we see? Now, the other interesting thing about this is uh, very often it's been thought of that the promised land is a, um, a symbol or metaphor of heaven. It's not. It's a metaphor or symbol of the Christian life once we're born again. In that, who knows, I know, you know, that once you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the promises of God, but they still have to be taken. So God's will is revealed to us in what Christ did on the cross, but we still have to take those promises. The promises of God are not automated. They are activated. And so Joshua and Caleb had to act on it. They had to believe. Now they went and they saw the same giants. They saw the same opposition. And, uh, and yet they decided to choose to believe God. This is a, a big thing for us to understand. We have the ability, it's a God-given ability, to choose God's will or to turn from God's will. It started in the garden. All right. Uh, some people have you believe that, that you don't have the ability to choose God's will or reject God's will. Well, if that's the case, then we're all just a bunch of marionettes and, and God's playing some awful trick on us because all through the Bible, he says to choose my will. I'm a, I'm a, a teacher by profession. I, I used to teach, and every now and again, especially in the secondary school, you get kids that say, I don't want to be here. I have to be here. And uh, I would say to them, you don't have to be here. I said, well, what do you mean we don't have to be here? He said, well, it's your choice. You can get up and leave now. I hope this never got to any of the principals. But I said, you can get up and leave now. I'm not going to stop you. Well, my parents will stop me. Your parents aren't here, but they make me come. I said, how do they make you come? Do they chain you up and do they drag you along? Do they bring you here? And, uh, you know, they're 15, 16. You know, you can't make a kid go to school. And the reason I did that is it started to, then they say things, well, if I don't come, then something bad will going to happen to me. You know, like, like what? I said, well, I'll get into trouble. I said, what else? He said, well, I won't get a good job. Well, what else? And they go through all the list, all the reasons why they should be in school, you know. And, and what I found is when they realized that they actually had the choice to be there, because you know, and we know that all the kids are in there, they don't have to find this out. You know, Athena, once they get to a certain age, you can't stop them. True? I know the secret, but you know, 
But when they realize that, you know, we bluff for a while, but eventually they realize that you can't stop them. And what I found is that when they actually sat and thought that through and they realized that, uh, you know, I, I don't have to be here. I could walk out. I, I could leave. Mum and dad will kick me out. Well, that's all right. That's your choice. And there's something empowering in knowing that it's your choice. Joshua said to the children of Israel, choose this day whom you will believe. We, and Moses said, he said, I've laid before you, God said before, God said to Moses, I lay before you life and death, life, sorry, death and curse, blessings and life, choose what you will choose which you will have choose life or choose death so we have the choice folks whether we're going to believe God and speak or we're going to believe what we see what we feel what we touch what things a report that is negative a report that's evil we have that choice I want you to say this I have that's I'd say a bit more enthusiasm. I have, I have the, ability the ability to choose, choose God's, will God's will for my life. Every morning you get up, you mightn't feel saved. You know, like if I was saved by feelings, you know, like probably four out of seven days I'm not saved. I <laughs> said, so, come on now, am I the only one? I see a lot of, thank you, Soroa. You're more like five. This is Soroa's birthday yesterday, everyone. He was 35. I'm sorry, I, I, I twisted those numbers, didn't I? Got them. <laughs> it's liberating to know that we can choose. And if we sit there and we think, I can choose to be sad. I can choose joy. I can choose to look at this situation and think that situation's going to overcome me. Or I can choose to believe God and to speak like God. Yeah. And so, uh, in the remaining time, <laughs> I'm going to talk about why it's okay to speak something when you feel the opposite. Or to say something which doesn't look like it's occurring. And how that's not a lie, how that's speaking truth. In fact, how that's God wants you to live that way. All right? In Mark 11, 20, uh, 22, 23, 24, and we know the story. Most of us know the story. They're walking into Jerusalem the day before, and Jesus curses the fig tree. They walk out and nothing's happened, and they turn around and they... You know, we're assuming nothing's happened because Peter didn't say anything, you know. They turn around, they walk back in. So a day and a half or so has gone past and the trees withered at its roots and Jesus set them up to, to describe to them how faith works. And it's the last week. It's the week before he's going to be taken, his life's going to be taken. And he's, he's teaching them on how to work faith. Once you have a belief, what do you do with it? Because he'd already said to them, remember the, uh, the, the uh, 
son that was possessed and they couldn't cast it out and Jesus said to him you know you've got to learn to work faith to cast it out he said if you if you had faith the size of a mustard seed you'd say to that mountain be thou removed and be thou cast in the sea so it wasn't the first time he taught it but he said this he said have faith in God now there's lots of things you can have faith in you can have faith in the government yeah, and who knows that? The last couple of years has, has, has changed a lot of, of what we think. Well, you can have faith in doctors. They should get a, you know. Okay, I've got doctors in my family. That wasn't so funny. But you, <laughs> you, can have, you can have faith in all sorts of things. You can have faith in what you see. And Jesus didn't say, have faith in what you see. Yeah. He could have said that, you know. He could have, couldn't he? Couldn't he? Couldn't he have said that? He could have said, listen, guys, you want to know how God works faith? Have faith in what you see. But he didn't say that. He didn't say, have faith in the Roman government, have faith in your employer, have faith. He didn't, you know what I find interesting? He didn't say, have faith in how you feel. (laughs) He's glad that he didn't say, have faith in how you feel. Because I would definitely lose my salvation a few times. And Linda would have lost it a lot more because she's got to put up with me. So have faith. He didn't say have faith. He could have said have faith in how you feel. Come on, he could have. And you and I know that most of the time, come on guys, when we're being, the Bible calls it carnal, fleshly, that most of the time we have faith in how we feel. Now, you know, I can tell that because, you know, you're feeling bad, you're going around, and you've got this, you, you, your, your faith your face is telling me your faith is in how you feel. How are you feeling? What do you think oh, I'm feeling? Can you tell them I'm feeling? And then what we say then lines up with how we feel. But he didn't say, have faith in how you feel. He didn't say that. By the way, FYI, BTW, for your information, by the way, uh, Jesus knows how you feel. Because the Bible says we have a high priest who knows how you feel. And that's a relief to me because he had some bad hair days. He had some days when he was just a little bit fed up with Peter, James and John. And he had some days where he felt like us. And so we can say, if someone says, you, how do you feel? You can rightly say, I feel exactly the same way Jesus felt when he was facing the same problem. Because he knows how we feel. And how are you going to feel? I'm going to feel exactly the same way Jesus felt when he had the victory. But Jesus never said, have faith in how you feel. He says, have faith in God. In fact, he said, verily, have faith in God. Which means this is really important. And if you have faith in God, or another way of saying it, have God's kind of faith, or have faith the way that God uses it, you will say to this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. And if you do not doubt in your heart, not your head, who knows your head screams at you sometimes, who knows your emotions scream at you sometimes, right? But the seed of faith is in your heart. If you do not doubt in your heart, but believe those things which you say shall come to pass, you shall have what you feel. You shall have what the government says. 
you shall have what you... No, he says, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast in the sea, and do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say is going to happen, you shall have what you say. So was not Jesus saying that faith is released primarily by what you say, and how you release it will determine what you have? Come on, sports fans. This, you know, you need to think about this. It's in there or it's not in there. He said it or he didn't say it. And I know we think about big things and we can tell you big stories of wonderful healings and wonderful victories. But remember Saroa last week trying to get up to the 10th rung up there? And I said, get up there, but don't go, don't, you can't use the first six. When God asks us to do something, it's made up of little achievable steps. Yeah. We can start with what we say about ourselves. In Romans 4, verse 17, we've looked at we looked at this verse. I think I've got it up here somewhere. I know I'm jumping around. Sorry, guys. I haven't quite got the knack of using this thing. That thing, which connects to that thing, which connects to that thing. Uh, we, remember, we looked at, first of all, we looked at Corinthians, where Paul says, talking about David and what David said, uh, and, and saying that we uh, have this glory within earthen vessels, right? So it, God knows we're not perfect, but we have him living in us. The greater one abides in us. He dwells in us. The Holy Spirit's in us. We have his word. We have this glory living in us. And then he said, therefore, we have this spirit of faith that says, I believe, therefore, I speak. In other words, I believe this, therefore I'm going to act as if it's true and speak as if it's true. That's the spirit of faith. Well, in Romans 4 verse 17, can we pull that up there? This is talking about how Abraham believed God and Abraham was the father of our faith. And, and Abraham, the Bible says we're to have the faith of Abraham. That doesn't mean that, you know, what Abraham believed, we believe. But we're to use faith like Abraham used faith. He said, as it's written, God says, I have made you, we're going to talk about this later, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believes. And then he talks about how God believes, all right? So how God uses faith. Who knows the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, all right? So we're spiritual beings like God's, uh, God is a spirit. God's a spiritual being. He's the eternal spirit. He wasn't created. Um, but we, um, but we're, in many ways, we're like our daddy. And we're expected to, to walk and talk and act like our daddy. And so this is how he does it. He says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So where to operate faith like God operates faith and God gives life to things which are, are dead. So he turns things that are not fruitful around and he makes them fruitful. And then he operates this, this way. He calls into being, thing into existence, things that do not exist. Now, I looked at this in quite a number of different translations and I'll uh, find them for you. King James Version said, Abraham believed God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. He calls those things which appear not 
as though they were. Um, so God, in believing something is going to happen, he calls it as, it's not appearing yet, but he calls it as though it has happened. Or he calls it as though it's already there. And we're going to, I'm going to show you this in a minute, how we did it a number of times, especially with Abraham. Uh, the American Standard Version says this, He believed even God who gives life to the death and calls those things not as though they are. The LSV Version says this, He believed God who's quickening the dead and is calling the things that is not as, as they are being. He calls things that are not as though they are already alive. Okay? And the NET Bible, I like this one, it says, He believed God who makes the dead alive alive, and summons, summons the things that do not exist as though they exist. Now, I just want you to understand how God uses faith. God summons the things that do not exist as though they already exist. That means he calls them. It, there's no physical reality. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. And yet it says he summons those things into existence. And Weymouth translation says this. He, I like this. He makes reference to things that do not exist <laughs> as though they exist. You know, you're reminded of these kids, you know, kids that have, you know, imaginary friends you know they're talking to their imaginary friend and it can seem a little crazy but God makes reference so he alludes to those things which he believes are going to come into existence he alludes to those things as they as though they already exist he refers to them he says well you know you know how I said this is going to happen and he counts it as being happened it's a little bit hard to get our head around, but the story of Abraham is a good story because we find that when God promised Abraham, uh, Abram's name, his name was Abram, all right? And Abraham means, a, I think, exalted father or something like that. And then in, in, in Genesis chapter 17, he comes to Abraham and he changes his name. He says, no longer shall your name be Abram. Your name shall be Abraham. Now, he just added an H. And the same with Sarai, you know, Sarai, and he's changed the name to Sarah. He added an H. And it's an interesting that he added the H. The H is there is the fifth word of the Hebrew, uh, uh, the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew um, letter. Alphabet, thank you very much. <laughs> Did anyone say alphabet? No, you just left me hanging, didn't you? Thank you very much. It's a fifth word, and you know, these letters have meaning. The fifth word uh, letter, it means it stands for grace, and it actually stands for God doing it when you don't deserve it and you can't earn it. So we added this letter H and changed, but it also changed the meaning of Abraham's because it says, you're, he says, you're, you're, uh, in, in Genesis 14, he said to Abram, I, I'm going to make you 
a father of a great nation. So the promise to Abram was, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. In Genesis chapter 17, he changed the promise. He said this, you've been trying your hardest. You've been trying your best. And you know, he had Ishmael and he had all those things that he was trying to do in his own effort. He said, now you're going to change your name and you're going to invite me into the equation. And he changed his name to mean the father of many, many nations. And you can imagine what it looked like, you know, Abraham and Sarah, you know, the, the guys he's working for, and the guys, sorry, the guys working for him, and they're calling him Abram. He goes, no, it's no, it's no longer Abram. It's Abraham. And they would have looked at him. Has anyone ever looked at you funny when you're believing for something and uh, they just think you're a little bit crackpot? They would have, he would have, they would have looked at Abraham and said, you want us to call you Abraham? Abraham? You can't even have a child by Sarah. But God added this letter and changed his name to mean you're going to be the father of many nations. Now, not only this, look at this. He says, no longer shall you be called Abraham, but your name shall Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham because I have. I have made you the father of many nations. And the, the, the tense which he used when he said that, he said, I have already made you the father of many nations. Who knows that there's things God believes about us that we don't even believe about us. There's things that God calls us that we just haven't yet started to live in the fullness of what that is. And I figure that if it's all right for God to call us those things, it's all right for us to call us those things. If it's all right for God to change Abram's name, to Abraham, then maybe we can change our name to the things God believes about us. And all these years, things that we're maybe we've been saying about ourselves, believing about ourselves, the truth of the matter is they're not eternal. They won't last. And I think we should start calling ourselves, summonsing ourselves, speaking about ourselves like God speaks about us. Yes. Is that fair enough? Like Jesus said, have faith in God. Now you may not feel like it, but feeling like it is not having faith in God. He says, you've you got to speak like God speaks. And I'm just going to give you three quick things. And we've talked about these things more uh, before, but I'm going to give you three things that we can say about ourselves, which God says about us. And these three things, just these three things, there's many things we can say, but these things will put us over. The first one's from 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says there, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. We are a new creation. The old person, it's not us. We are made new in Christ. 
And when the devil comes and uh, the Bible says the Lord's mercies are new every morning. In fact, the Bible says we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And following this verse, it says, For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That, it would blow our mind if we understood fully what it meant, but we can say this, I am a new creation. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My righteousness is not the sum total of what I've done. My righteousness is not the sum total of what I feel. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And it helps you, it'll help to get up in the morning and when you're feeling a bit condemned and maybe you've blown it, to look in the mirror and say, Grant, you are the righteousness of God. Bev, you are the Trev, you are the righteousness. Paul will come back to you. Kim, you are. <laughs> we might need a little bit more faith for the South Africans. Now. <laughs> but we can say, I am. And Sarah, we're going to just have a 24-hour fast and pray. That's for you. No. We, I am. Say this with me. I am, I am. the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The second thing we can say is this. It says in Ephesians 2.6, it says, He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Christ rose from the dead, the Bible says in Ephesians, we rose with him and he seated us with him in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? We're going to talk more about that in weeks to come or in months to come. But it means this. The same, and the Bible says this, the same power that rose Christ from the dead raised us. This was no ordinary salvation. And actually says, he seated us with him in Christ Jesus. That means the reality of the accomplished work of Christ Jesus has been fulfilled in our life. That means that you cannot get in a higher position. You cannot have more authority. You cannot have a, a better view of eternity than what you have now. It's a reality in Christ Jesus. I am seated with him in heavenly places that's how god esteems us marcel he took you out of the grave he took you out of sin he brought you up with him and he said sit next to me look at the view from here it's a good view from here you know it says he put every he put the devil under his feet i don't understand uh, all these people that are worried about the devil i really don't If you want to know how to pray about the devil, if you want to know how to carry on spiritual warfare or whatever, how would Jesus be doing it now? In authority. In authority. How would Jesus, if if the devil's working, how would Jesus, Mr. Devil, don't disturb me. I'm going to fast and pray for six weeks. And when I've lost five kilos, then I'm going to have enough power. Don't. He, He says, we are seated with him in heavenly places. Daniel never knew this. Daniel was not born again. Daniel was not raised with Christ. Don't use Daniel as your example for spiritual warfare. Awful quiet around here sometimes. 
It doesn't say what Daniel, what took Daniel 21 days was done in Christ Jesus. All power, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. Go ye therefore. When we have face opposition, we can say, I'm seated. Devil, you're under my feet. He's under my feet. He's under my feet. You just, now my victory is complete. Jesus spoiled principalities. He made a show of them openly when he rose from the dead. And he took you, Pastor Chloe, and seated you next to him. And said, were you impressed with what I did to the devil? Are you impressed with what I did? And we need to think about this because we can say, if we're getting opposition, you know, you know when the devil's trying to attack you. You get these thoughts and you get these feelings and you get these symptoms. And you can say, hang on now, I'm seated. I'm seated with Christ. And I speak about those circumstances. I'm speaking as if the job means the job's done. It's like, you know, when you mow the lawn, muscle, you know that was muscle. It's over there. You mow the lawn, you go and have your shower, and what do you do? You go and you sit on the lounge. You think the job's done, baby. Look at that fresh smelling lawn. You know, Jesus defeated Satan. There was no more work to be done. And so we're not to be bluffed. He goes around as a roaring lion, but we can say, I am seated with him in heavenly places. And just one more, just by way of example. Romans 8.37 says, In all things we are more than conquerors. I know some of us were just settled for being a conqueror. Some of us said we just settled for a few wins today, you know. But the Bible says we're more, the reason we're more than conquerors is because he fought for us. And I want to encourage us to start, you know, it, it can be hard, but we can choose to believe that. We can choose to believe that we're righteous in God, in Christ Jesus. We can choose to believe that we're seated with him in heavenly places. We can choose to believe that we're more than conquerors. And when opposition comes our way, because the devil, the Bible says, Rome's walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour well he's not going to devour us because one we're right with God two we're seated with him three we're more than confidence right. so we can call those things which appear not as though they are praise God faith speaks Spirit of faith is I believe, therefore I speak. Christ has accomplished those things for us. We've been made righteous. We're seated with him in heavenly places. We can walk tall. We can say we're more than conquerors. The Bible says, no weapon that is formed against me shall prosper. 